Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that guides and inspires to find the treasure within human experience. Our guest today on Treasure Mountain is Ian Green, who is chairman of the Great Stupa of Universal Compassion and founder of the Jade Buddha for Universal Peace. Along with his wife, Judy, he's been a Buddhist now for over 40 years and a vegetarian for over 25 years. Ian's connection to Buddhism began with a visit to India in 1971. He has had the good fortune to meet many Buddhist teachers, including Geshe Loden, Sasep Tulku, Lama Tabdan Yeshi, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and Ayakema. In 1979, Ian completed the month-long course at Kopan Monastery in Kathmandu. Ian has continued his studies under many Buddhist masters to this day. Uh, in 1980, Ian's father, Ed Green offered over 50 acres of land to set up a Buddhist centre near Bendigo. The original 50 acres was later added to with further land from Ian's mother and himself so that the Buddhist centre in Bendigo is now 200 acres. Ian was founding director of the Atisha Centre and he has served uh, as board members of the Tara Institute and Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition. He is currently chairman of the Great Stupa of Universal Compassion and the founder of the Jade Buddha for Universal Peace. Ian has received various awards for his international work for peace and is a recipient of the Order of Australia Medal. It is the great stupor of Universal Compassion that is Ian Green's inspired project that we are going to focus on in this episode. And as you'll find out in this interview, and what the real meaning and purpose of the great stupor really is. So join us as we seek for the treasure within. Welcome to Treasure Mountain, Ian. How are you today? Oh, very well, Sol. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that you've taken the time to come in and talk to us. Uh, and I'm really excited to find out about the great stupor of universal compassion, which I, I know a little bit about, but I'm hoping to find out much more. I'd like to start, first of all, mm, Ian, mm. with um, let's talk about your personal story and your, your mm. path into the practice. How did your early life experiences lead you into uh, Buddhist practice? Well, I, I think so. From a very young age, I was uh, asking myself the sort of big questions of life. You know, like why are we here, and why are, why do so many people suffer, and why are some people seem to be born lucky, and others seem to be born with all sorts of problems. And um, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to find the answers to this. Originally, my parents. Um, sent me along to Sunday school. They said, you must go there until you, you're the age of 12 and then you can make up your own mind. So I went along there, but I, I was really not very impressed by what I, um, by what I saw. I, I saw people acting very sanctimoniously, but in fact, I knew these people from you know, the way they, they, uh, they uh, behaved in their normal environment. And so I could see there was a bit of a disconnect between what they were saying on one, one level and the way they were actually, actually behaving. So at the age of 12, I went into my parents' bedroom and I said, Mum and Dad, I've decided I'm not going back to Sunday school. All Christians are hypocrites. <laughs> now, that, this was with the, uh, the arrogance of uh, a 12-year-old who thinks he knows everything. Um, but it was, you know, one of the first journeys down a spiritual path that I explored and uh, it was always trying to find something that that made sense to me uh, on a heart level but also on a head level and uh, I, so I kept looking from that day on uh, always trying to find something so that was the start of the journey later on I was to to meet many other um, uh, spiritual guides um, particularly um, Hindu or, or yogi teachers. And, uh, and um, I also explored spiritualism for a while and, and read many things at the Theosophical Bookshop, which is with an institution in Melbourne. 
But again, I, I could never find anything that really made made sense to me on the at the heart and at the head level. So in a way, then I almost gave up on the spiritual search. And after I graduated from university, um, I then decided that oh look, I just needed to you know just start enjoying life. So I then leapt into hedonism headlong. Uh, I got a job in advertising, which I which I loved. And um, uh, from there, I started to explore all sorts of uh, uh, ways of, uh, you know, ex- living an exciting life. So I had lots of um, uh, girlfriends, lots of drinking, lots of long lunches, lots of gambling at poker and so forth. And in a way, it was very, very enjoying, enjoyable because I, I really love meeting all these people who are a very exciting bunch of people to work with. But somehow or another, um, the longer it went on, the more disillusioned I became. And I, I could see those around me really suffering as well. Um, and uh, I sort of came to the realisation unless I do something about this, I'm going to end up in a very early grave uh, because I, I really felt like I was burning the candle at both ends, as the expression goes. So not with much forethought, um, I decided that I would go to India and maybe I would find some answers there. Now, this is a little bit unusual because I, uh, when you think back on it, because I'd already met a couple of swamis in Melbourne and uh, explored their teachings and I was impressed by them but I, but I never really made that connection but anyway for some reason or another a voice inside said I should go to India so I did and so as soon as I landed in India I, I realized um, two things I realized first of all how materialistic Australia was and secondly um, I realized that spirituality was the, still the thing that was missing from my life. And what I mean by that is every tree that we drove by uh, seemed to have a little altar under it. Every shop you went into had a little shrine to one day or to another. Uh, every taxi you were in had on the dashboard a, a, a Hindu deity. So it just I realized how significant spirituality was to India, or it certainly was in those days anyway, uh, and it just underlined again and again the thing that was really still lacking in my life. Um, but having said that, um, somehow or another I could never connect with the Hindu deities. Um, you know, I thought, uh, you know, Ganesh and Hanuman and so forth were you know, really funky looking and I loved the t-shirts and the posters with them on, but somehow or another it was not really something that I could personally connect with. Anyway, I continued my journeys in India until towards the end of that visit where I went to Banaras or Varanasi uh, on, the, on the Ganges. And I was there and it was so hot and so smelly and there were all those burning bodies on the ghats and um, just so much noise and so forth. I just felt, look, I've got to find some sort of, some uh, refuge from this place, uh, some uh, maybe a park or something. So I asked in the hotel and they said, oh, there's a park nearby. So I called a taxi there, it was about 10 kilometres away. And um, I, when I got there, it was a very barren-looking place, and um, it seemed to be you know, not much shade, not, not many people around. But anyway, I said, "Oh well, I'll go here." So while I'm, uh, while I've made this trip here, so I went into this park. It was surrounded by a fence, and as soon as I went into the park, I had this incredible feeling that uh, I'd, I'd somehow, I don't know, it's like. I felt like I'd suddenly entered a new reality. Somehow I felt completely peace, peaceful, and a, and a total calm came over me. Um, it's something I'd never experienced before, and it felt very strange. In fact, I even looked around me at, back at the taxi to see whether maybe the world had changed or something like that. But then I realized, no, no, it was just I was feeling completely different to any, any way I'd ever felt before. 
And I thought, you know, I sort of sat down on a rock, as I recall, and, and just thought, well, I'd better, what, what's happening to me? And I looked around for a clue to what might be, you know, what had made the difference. Anyway, I saw a sign that I'd walked straight by as I came through the, through the door in the, in the fence, the gate in the fence. And I went back there and I read that this was Sarnath, or Deer Park, which is the place where the Buddha first taught. Um, and so I realised that I'd come to a very significant Buddhist pilgrimage place. Mm. A little bit later, uh, shortly after that, I, I, I came across this enormous, big, oh, I describe it as a bit like a big lump. I couldn't work out whether it was man-made or whether it was natural. It was covered with all these little ferns and bushes and so forth. Anyway, I, I saw a sign that this was the Damak Stupa, which is the stupa built at the, at the, sign of, um, the site of the Buddha's first, first teaching. Which is what uh, we, which happened at Sarnath, and somehow almost the, the power of this stupa almost was so strong. I almost was not, felt like I was knocking me off my feet. So it was a very profound experience going to that park, and it really, you know, completely changed my life. I'd say from that day, uh, with my understanding, you know, later acquired that that uh, I'd made that karmic connection with my previous lifetimes as a Buddhist. And by going there, somehow this had reconnected or rekindled mm -hmm. that connection. Um, later on, I, before I left the park, there was a little shop there and I went in there. There was a man dozing away on a seat. I'm sure I was his first customer for the day. And um, I bought a little book, What is Buddhism? And uh, on the plane coming back to Australia, I, I actually flicked the, the book open and started to read it. And I had uh, quite a, you know, like a very strange feeling that I knew everything that this book was saying, but I'd never seen the words before. Yeah, right. So it was talking about things like, you know, karma and uh, rebirth and the, you know, the Four Noble Truths, etc., etc., And suddenly, you know, I had this great feeling of affinity as if, yeah, I, I'm completely familiar with this, but I don't remember seeing any of these words written like this. Um, later on, I came back and there, it was sort of coincidental, I suppose, or it seemed that way, that when I came back, um, I, there was a, a, a Buddhist monk. He was a Melbourne doctor who'd become one of the first monks ordained in the Tibetan tradition, Dr. Nick Rebush. And I went along to, I heard him on the radio actually initially. And again, I had that same feeling, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about, but I haven't heard those words before. And that same experience, which I guess you, you know, in a Western term, you might describe as something like deja vu. Um, well, I kept having that feeling uh, over the first uh, few months as I encountered more and more of the Buddhist teachings. So that's really how I became a Buddhist. That mm. was, uh, uh, you know, I was on a spiritual search. It was taking a long time um, to try and find out exactly what I was, you know, what path I was on. But suddenly, when I met it at Sarnath, at this holy pilgrimage place. Um, then, you know, it, the conditions and the causes were right and it just instantly uh, it became a, um, you know, a rekindled my connection with Buddhism. Yeah, I mean, that's really amazing story because it's, it does sound like a lot of things started to fall into place uh, after you went to Saranath. Um, now, I did want to ask you, what, who were some of the teachers that inspired you Early on, you know, I know you mentioned Nick Rebush. Were there any other teachers mm. that really inspired you uh, in, the, in that, that early stage to get started? Yes, well, I, I very soon discovered um, Tara House, which was a, um, I think Nick was giving a course there or giving a, a lecture. So I went along there. And then uh, at Tara House, um, they, they actually had a visiting, a, a teacher come to them, uh, Geshe Loden, and Geshe Loden had a translator who was uh, Zazap Tulku. 
and the two of them were uh, amazing teachers and uh, they certainly along with Nick were the, were the early teachers. Um, I also met a, a Tibetan nun at that stage uh, or she actually she was an American an American uh, from the Bronx, so she spoke with a very American uh, accent, American Jewish accent, and she was the director of Tara House at that stage. So she was uh, she was also a, a, a teacher, and I learned a lot from from her, uh, as but particularly from Geshe Loden and Zatuka in the early stages. Later on, I was to meet uh, Lama Yeshi. And I guess the thing that, um, you know, that really transformed my Buddhist practice as well, because suddenly um, when I'm, you know, the, I was very slow to, or reluctant, I guess you'd say, to get too deeply involved in Buddhism, because I, you know, I was still had a bit of skepticism about me, about various things. And I, you know, the idea of Frustrating didn't come very naturally to me. I remember in the early days, every time I'd get down on my hands and uh, knees, well, I was others around me were getting down on my hands and knees. I would find it very difficult to mm. actually um, get, get down and prostrate, prostrate, prostrate myself because it seemed like I was, you know, somehow demeaning mm. um, uh, to, to me, but. In a way, that, that, of course, as I came to realise after a while, that in a way was the whole point of uh, prostration, is to actually lower yourself and to show that there are others and to you know, acknowledge there are others who know a lot more uh, than you do. Um, and anyway, eventually, I, I slowly, slowly got, got invo involved in the whole process. But really, when Lama Yeshi came to Melbourne in 1979, that's when my practice really uh, transformed. And I think uh, when I, I discovered with him was that I certainly had found the path for me, that I'd found a, a path that made uh, total sense to my head, but also to my heart. And then when I, I actually met him, um, actually I met him a few times on, on that, uh, that particular visit, I had the incredible feeling that when I actually looked into his eyes, that he could look straight into mm. my eyes and and see everything, you know, inside me, good and bad. Um, and it was one of those things that I, you know, I developed this. It felt a bit like the same. The closest feeling I could have was a bit like falling in love in a way that I had this incredible connection that, that somehow when I looked into Lama's eyes, I could, I could see um, that he completely accepted me and that I was you know, willing to do anything I could to try and help him in whatever way he wanted. Well, I, I, as, I understand it, I, as I understand it, though, Lama Yeshi is going to have a tremendous impact upon your life, but also is going to be instrumental in... Uh, putting forth the idea of the Great Stupa. In fact, he had a vision for mm. starting a small Buddhist village in Australia, and you became involved with that from an early stage. Could you tell us about that? Yes, indeed. So um, um, I completed in, in 1979, after meeting him in Melbourne, I then went to Copan and did a month-long course. And at that particular course, Lama said to me, it's very, very important we find a regional centre in, in Victoria where we, can, uh, where we can establish a retreat centre, but also a place where people can get away from the busyness of, um, uh, of Melbourne and uh, the big city energy. So I then started with some others going around everywhere around Victoria searching for somewhere that, you know, was met our needs but also our budget. I couldn't find anywhere. And one weekend I was going home to Bendigo and I said to my dad, look, ah, oh, do you can't find anywhere that's going to be suitable to set up this Buddha centre. Uh, my father, Ed, said, well, maybe I can give you 50 acres to begin with. So um, he'd actually bought 700 acres of land, um, not only 15, 20 minutes from Bendigo, and he built 
bought it, I think almost on a bit of a whim because it was a large piece of land. It had a real connection to the sort of area that he was born in and brought up. So maybe there was an emotional connection as well. Um, anyway, that w from his offer of 50 acres, I then contacted Lamieshi and said, look, Lama, my dad's offered this land. Um, would do you think this would be suitable? Now, Lama, like uh, most Tibetan Lamas, actually uh, rely on divination for important decisions such as this. So he asked a couple of um, high lamas if they could uh, give some divination on whether this land in Bendigo would be appropriate, would be very suitable. So um, he, he initially got back some, react, some responses from them that would be of, of moderate benefit. But of course, Lama was uh, never, uh, you know, never willing to accept the obvious. He was a bit of a radical teacher, so uh, he went out for a second opinion. So he went to some other lamas and said, "Look, I'm, I want to know if this if this land would be suitable." And from these other lamas' divinations, he got back the response that it would be incredibly beneficial. So he then wrote to me very enthusiastically and said, "Yes, yes, we will accept the." Um, accept your father's offer, and uh, this is in 1980, and I'll come there when I'm next coming to, to Australia in, uh, in uh, around about August 1981, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a course in, uh, at Bendigo on the land. So that was the cause for a whole lot of development and uh, a lot of you know, change of career for me, actually moved, giving up my, my job, moving to Bendigo with my new partner, Judy, and with one or two others as well, and to actually set up the course for, uh, for Lama Zuzit which was, uh, we went there in early 1981. It was to be set up and, and to be held, actually, in, in August. So it was not very long to do it all. Anyway, the course did come. We were, you know, the paint was barely dry by the time Lama arrived. And um, after he'd been there for a few days, he asked uh, myself and another fellow, Gary Folks, to come on a walk with me. And uh, on this walk, he described the vision he had for the whole site. So first of all, uh, we went for a walk along near the, the, the uh, Kuan Yin pond that we have there at the moment. And he stopped and he grabbed a stick and drew in the ground. Uh, and pointing up to his left, he said, that's where we will build a big stupa. And it, in that big stupa will be a big gompa. Now, gompa is the Tibetan word for a temple. And there'll be a library. And then pointing over to the right, he said, over there will be a lay village. And there'll be a hospice. And there'll also be uh, you know, other, other developments around here as well. Then afterwards, we walked up to the monastery hill, uh, up to the stupa hill, first of all. You know, the, the vegetation was very thick and we had to actually almost peel it back to get, to get through the vegetation to get, first of all, to the, to the Stupa Hill. And you could see that there was, you know, quite a, a nicely rounded hill there. We then said, and, and up here, he said, and he walked off for another, oh, it must have been like 600, 700 metres, sort of climbing up to the next hill. And he said, this is where the monastery will be. It will start here, and then he kept walking and walking and walking and walking, and it will go until eventually he said it will go to here. So that was about four or 500 metres that he walked. And I, all during that walk, I kept thinking, how big is this, is this monastery going to be? Anyway, it has all come about exactly as he had envisaged. Um, the monastery is on that hill. It's exactly in the dimensions that he laid out. Um, the stupa has been developed on the first hill. Uh, I, you know, I had the distinct feeling as I walked around there with Lamiyashi that um, he could see the whole thing in his mind. Now, I don't even think that he'd ever been on those particular pieces of land at all before. I, I, you know, no one was aware that he was walking, or no one had ever seen him walking in the bush. 
So, I mean, I, I don't think he had, and yet somehow or another, as he walked around there, it was as if he knew, walked with exact precision, knew exactly where he was going. It, it was quite a uh, profound experience. That's incredible. So and It also is incredible because um, that set off a chain of events that is going to lead to all, all of these things have come to pass. Is that correct? So we've, we've now got the, the stupa. We've got, is there's a retreat mm-hmm. center. Is there, uh, there's a, mo- yes. a monastery. Is that, is, of, all, yes. of all those things that were talked about by Lama Yeshi 40 odd years ago, that those things have now come to fruition. Is that correct? That's basically correct. Certainly, um, the retreat center, Atisha Center, has been operating basically from the day Lama came there, so for 42 years. Uh, the monastery is complete. It's got rooms for about 24 monks. There are currently six monks living there. Um, we, the lay village is well into the planning stages, uh, and we expect that to be underway soon. The hospice and the primary school will happen in the in the future, mm. uh, and we've also started on a nunnery as well. So it's it's started construction as well. So mm. essentially, that master plan that Lama had in his head and he walked around with us in 1981 has come to fruition exactly as he said, with a few other things added added in as we've uh, as we've come to develop it things that things have gone naturally that oh this should be here or that should be there but basically we followed uh lama yeshi's master plan to uh to the exact t really well i have to say it's one thing to have a plan uh that's kind of like uh like einstein said it's one percent inspiration 99 percent perspiration the last 40 odd years this mm. has been a project that has been I guess uh, the, your baby, you're, you've really focused on it um, to make it to bring it to fruition. It must have been surely some tremendous challenges and obstacles along the way. Could you perhaps relate, like what it was like going through that period where there must have been some really difficult patches? Yes. Well, I mean, just existing in those early days was difficult because um, I. Uh, with my uh, current wife, Judy, uh, my, sorry, I'm currently married to Judy, but at that stage we weren't married, but she, she came with three, three boys, who the youngest was three. Um, there was no electricity, there was no running water on the site, so, so somehow I had to look after this instant family. Um, we, we, there was an old railway carriage there that we converted into like as best we could into a bit of a home. Um, as I said, there was no running water, so we had to carry the water there. There was no light, no electricity, so at night we could only, uh, you know, make things, uh, see where we were going, uh, by a tilly lamp. So even, you know, just existing was difficult. But then around a Tisha Centre was extremely difficult as well because uh, there were very few people to help us initially. And those people who came when Lama Yeshi was there in 1981 sort of drifted away one after another afterwards because they, you know, there wasn't an active teaching program there. Um, so we could understand why they, why they would leave us. They'd go to their own homes. And it just left us with a hard core of... Judy, uh, myself, and uh, Ken Horter, who was a, another fellow I'd met at the Copan course in 1979. So the three of us struggled on, and then one or two other local people came to help us as well. And the first few years at Atisha Centre were really just a survival case where we would just try and get the message out. There was a Buddhist centre in Bendigo. We would often do a lot of the teaching uh, ourselves because we couldn't get a, a visiting teachers to come. Uh, uh, you know, financially it was incredibly difficult as well. So we put a lot of our own savings into actually make, making it happen as best as best we could. It took ten years for that to really to be you know solid enough for us to handed over to the first uh, first new directors of the whole place uh, and then you know it was it was you know able to stand on its own two feet 
So that, that gave me uh, a chance really then to um, ease my way out of it. Well, I was still very involved for, for several years more. Um, but then to start thinking about, you know, the big project of my life, the main purpose of my life, I think, which is to build the great stupa. Mm. Um, even, uh, of course, even at this planning stage, this was very difficult because, um, uh, you know, the idea of building something like this yeah, in the middle of the Australian bush, um, nowhere near a capital city, not even near, you know, in, in or uh, adjoining a, a regional city, um, you know, was you know, quite a sort of radical idea and, and very few people believe it could ever happen. Um, most of my friends in Bendigo would say, look, you know, it'll never happen. How could you build something way out there? Um, even even some um, Buddhist monks would just shake their heads and say, it's just too big to try and build the original. One of them said, why don't you just make a scale model of it? <laughs> um, but somehow, because I, I, you know, I had this connection with Lama Yeshi, I had complete devotion to him. So I knew it would, would always happen. Um, the only thing I didn't know was whether I had the, um, you know, the karma to actually be, be that person to make it happen. And, of course, I didn't know when it would happen. I thought maybe it'll happen after I'm, after I'm gone, but mm. at least um, I, I know it will happen. And I also felt, well, you know, if I can't make it happen, then maybe no one else can. So um, uh, I'll just have to do my best to make it happen. So initially I had no idea what was involved in making a you know, multi-storey high, 10-storey high building. Um, and, you know, it, it was stressed that, you know, this building had to last for a thousand years. So even trying to find architects and engineers who were willing to take on a project like this where, you, where you, you know, you had that longevity as one of the key factors, what was an, uh, you know, that was an enormous challenge as well. Also, like the design of the stoop, all we knew from Lama Yeshi was to, the stoop was to be big. So what, what on earth would, uh, you know, what does that mean? Where do we start? Judy and I had a friend who was an architect and we asked him to come up with some ideas that I could put to Lama Zopa. Uh, and he came up with sort of a hybrid design which combined, you know, like a Sri Lankan stupa or an Indian stupa with a... Uh, you know, like an Aussie homestead, so you had a bit of a mixture of uh, the two. Um, you know, the look on Lama Zopa's face when I showed him these designs was enough to say <laughs> we're not on the right track at all. Um, but in fact, it was Lama Zopa who himself gave, who gave the, the final um, direction on which way we were to go with the stupa um, because he had... Uh, Someone in Melbourne had shown him a coffee table book and across this coffee table book in the centre spread over a photograph of the Gyansi stupa, he had scrawled, this is my idea for the stupa in Bendigo. So when I saw this book, I uh, opened it up and saw that message. In fact, I had never seen a photo of Gyansi stupa beforehand, but I instantly fell in love with it. Mm. I just loved it. The, the size of it, it was, um, it was big, but at the same, stone, same stage, you could sort of relate to it on a human level. It had a harmony about it that was to do with its sort of shape, but also it, it had a complete decoration phase about it as well, which was, you know, I just found to be beautiful. So then I realised that, well, all of a sudden, you know, the idea of we're just going to make a stupa was no longer just an idea. We knew exactly where it was going to be and what it was going to look like. And so we then had to get in seriously into the process of getting planning approvals, getting architecture, getting engineering, 
uh, and then talking about the construction, and then most importantly, thinking about how on earth we were ever going to fund something, um, because even in those early days, the first uh, quantity surveyor who looked at it said, well, it's at least $20 million to build something like this. Uh, that's just the structure alone. So, yeah, there are lots of um, sleepless nights, I guess, um, just trying to get my head around all these issues. Um, I was, you know, supported through this whole process by this devotion I had in Mamiyeshi that, you know, he had seen this as a vision, that he knew how important it was, and he'd asked me to make it. Mm. So somehow or another... I just had to do my best. That's all, all I could do. Well, that's an inspiring story, I mean, because, wow, you know, it's been 40 years of your life and you're still going, of course, to achieve such a, mm. what must have seemed like virtually impossible to begin with and now and now it's a reality. And I do want to say that the great stupor of universe compassion and the, the complex around it is uh, much more <clears> than just a stupor. And you've mentioned already that there's uh, a gompa or a temple inside as well as a, a library, but there are other projects associated with it. And one of those projects is the Jade Buddha for Universal Peace. Could you tell us a little bit about mm. that? Yes, indeed. So this all started in uh, 2003. I had a phone call from America and there was a young guy on the other end of the, end of the line. He introduced himself as Cheyenne Sun Hill and he spoke like, you know, someone out of uh, one of those American movies. And I can say, hey, dude, uh, you know, I've got this, uh, this, we found this big boulder of jade and I really want to make it into a big Buddha. And I'm, I'm thinking, is this guy for real? You know, he just didn't come across as like, it was the strange, strange, very strange phone call. Anyway, the more I listened to him, he explained that he was a Buddhist, but also a jade uh, jeweler. And um, this big boulder of jade had been discovered in the year 2000, three years before the phone call. And in those three years, the, um, they'd been trying to find, uh, and I say they, the jade company and Cheyenne, had been trying to find someone to make this boulder into a giant monumental piece. Uh, hadn't had no luck at all. Uh, uh, Cheyenne had run Buddhist projects around the world, but no one wanted to take on something that big either because it was, you know, they couldn't afford it or were too busy with their own projects, or they thought it was a bit of a distraction from their main, uh, from their, their, their main mission, if you like. Anyway, almost out of desperation, Cheyenne gave me a call in Australia because he'd heard about this great stupa that was being built there. Um, it was, you know, fortuitous, coincidental, or whatever the word was, that um, uh, Cheyenne lived in Santa Cruz in California, and only three weeks from the date of that phone call, I was actually planned to go to Santa Cruz. Um, I was a, um, a member of the FPMT um, Inc. board, which is the international body of the FPMT organization. Uh, and the board meeting was due to be in Santa Cruz, of all places, in three months' time. So I said, look, I'm going to be there in your place. I'll come a day or two early and we can talk about it in person. So he was very happy with that. So it came about, I flew into Santa Cruz and he came to meet me. Um, he was a sort of what I would picture over the phone, I suppose, a shortish guy, completely bald head and tattoos everywhere and enormous lumps of jade in his ear, like he had uh, ear plugs, which are things about the size of a bottle cap, um, in his earlobes. Um, which were, you know, big plugs that were, were in there. These are pieces that he'd made himself. But a very gentle and sweet guy at the same time. So he took me around Santa Cruz and showed me some of the Santa Cruz lifestyle. He bought me a vegan taco. And then we actually went to a, uh, 
a South Pacific Island nudist club where we all we both um, got naked and hopped, hopped into hot, hot tubs with various other people. Uh, and so this is my introduction to <laughs> Cheyenne and to Santa Cruz. Uh, uh, after that, we things settled down a bit, and we went to uh, went somewhere, and we talked about Jade, um, and he explained to me about um, the significance of this boulder, which had already been descri- described as the find of the millennium. Uh, it'd been written up in books and so forth because of the size of it, but also because of the the gem quality. Anyway, I thought something that I had to explore this idea. So I arranged after the board meeting uh, that I would fly to Canada with um, with Cheyenne. So we went off to um, Canada and eventually got to meet um, Kirk Makepeace, who was the chairman of the, the Jade Company. And eventually he showed me this big Jade boulder. It was the size of like a... Um, Maybe the size of a, of a, a reasonable size car, um, and um, it just looked like a brown rock because the jade is a, it's very strange. It's got this brown colour about it, but in fact, that's a very thin rind, only maybe one or two uh, millimetres thick. But if you polish that uh, that surface, suddenly you find this beautiful translucent green jade coming color coming out so anyway after that trip i then spoke to lama zopa about it and i said look i've i've seen this jade and there's something about it i don't know maybe uh, maybe we should do something about it anyway he didn't say much that night but the next morning he came back to me and he, he had this vision and he said you must make this uh, boulder into a Buddha as an offering to peace to, and to peace to the world. It will be so significant. You must do this. So my initial thought was, oh, you know, I'm already building this enormous stupa. Do I really need another big project to get involved with? But somehow or another... Um, I guess because of uh, a bit like Lama Yeshi uh, and his vision for the stupas, because Lama Zopa felt it was so important, um, and I, I had you know such devotion to Lama Zopa as well. Then I thought, well, if he thinks it's that important, then I'll have to find a way to make it happen. So eventually, we had we negotiated a deal with the uh, Kirk Makepeace and his company we, to purchase the Jade Boulder for uh, a million US dollars, which we didn't have a million US dollars. But uh, somehow or another, we we negotiated an agreement that it would take us five years to pay this off. Um, so then we had to just come up with. Down payments, first of all, one hundred and fifty thousand US dollars, um, and again, we didn't have that money either. But some, somehow, I just kept thinking, I will find it some way or another. And we explored many different options. Many of them failed. Most of them failed. But eventually, we discovered one or two people who were, you know, very supportive of the whole idea. And we also discovered. Um, a plan where we could almost pre-sell some Buddhas made from offcuts of the Jade Buddha. So we had benefactors who were happy to make offerings for the Buddhas as long as it came from the So for the combination of things like this and the generosity of many people, we were able to make our first down payment, which enabled us to get the, the boulder shipped to Thailand where we started to carve it. The whole process from when I saw the boulder to when it was finished took five years. So it was finished by the end of um, uh, 2008. And then in 2009, we started a world tour. Uh, That world tour went on for uh, eight or nine years. It took in 130 cities around the world in 22 countries, I think it was, in Europe, America, Asia. Uh, India, 
Sri Lanka and so forth. And eventually over 12 million people came to see the Jade Buddha for universal peace. It was, uh, you know, an incredible thing. Mm. And there were so many people received so much blessing from this Jade Buddha traveling the world. It also um, helped us raise a lot of funds for the Great Stupa as well, mm. uh, because people would ask, where is this Jade Buddha going? And I would say, it's going to this Great Stupa we're building in Bendigo. And uh, they would say, where is, where is this Bendigo? <laughs> and I would say, it's near... <laughs> And I would say, it's near Melbourne, it's near Melbourne. They say, oh, Melbourne, that's good. When, when, it's, when, when the Jade Buddha comes back there, I'm coming to Bendingo and I'm going to come and see it for myself. So, and, you know, then they would make offerings to, to the Great Stupa as well. So, uh, yeah, it, just, it wasn't intended to be that way, but the whole thing really had this incredible impetus where for uh, nine years or so it w we were able to generate these funds which would help us every time we'd get some more funds we'd build a bit more of the stupa bit by bit by bit uh, like building a sort of wedding cake but over a, a decade sort of thing it's really interesting to hear about how that has also inspired people's faith but also um, contributed to the great stupa so it's like the different parts of it are mutually supportive um, I did want to ask about another. Exactly. Yeah, I did want to ask about another part of the project as well, which is one I don't believe it was part of the original plan, but it's now a reality, and that's the Peace Park, which is aimed at fostering mm. interfaith harmony. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. It wasn't part of uh, Lama Yeshi's plan, but it's been something that I've really taken to heart from His Holiness Dalai Lama mm. uh, because. His Holiness has said so many times how, you know, the fostering of interfaith harmony is sacred work and that's something he really wanted everyone to encourage. Uh, and certainly uh, Lama, Lama Zopa has also stressed this as well. So I felt because we had such a public pace with the Great Stupa that, um, you know, we're, last year we had nearly 100,000 visitors. Of those visitors, about half were Buddhist, probably a bit less than half, and a bit over half were tourists. They were just general public. So I realised that um, we can make a big impact on people by uh, putting out this message of interfaith harmony. So I, I said this, um, put this vision to Lama Zopa, and he wholeheartedly ag agreed with it. And I've subsequently put the idea to His Holiness as well, who's given it his full support. Um, so in this peace park, which is a bit of over six hundred square meter park, we've got a, uh, a statue of Saint Francis from the Catholic face. We have a symbol of Ikonka, which is a symbol from the Sikh faith, which means oneness with God, oneness with people, um, oneness of humanity. So it's a very, very sim symbolic, universal faith. Uh, we also have a Jewish Hanukkah, which is like a menorah, uh, a candle which is lit at the Festival of Peace. Right next to that, we're building an, uh, an Islamic mirab, uh, which is uh, one way of describing this, like a mini mosque. Uh, and I deliberately wanted the two of these side by side. Um, and actually behind them, we've also set up a, a, what we call a biblical garden. So the, there are five or six fruits from uh, which are common to both the Bible uh, the Quran and uh, also the, the Jewish texts as well, uh, things like pomegranates and grapes and dates and and um, figs and and olives. Uh, so behind, surrounding those is this biblical garden. Um, right next to that is a is a Hindu temple, which is a, a Nepalese style uh, temple to Ganesh. Um, we also have being established a, uh, a Baha'i garden is, is established and um, we also have various Buddhist uh, activities throughout here as well. 
and we and finally we have an aboriginal or indigenous symbol as well being developed in, in the peace park now as well as these different faiths we also have different aspects of buddhism as well because as a buddhist we know that you know not all buddhists have always seen eye to eye uh, various um, uh, you know, traditions have seen that they are the true way or they're more important than another way. Um, but I wanted to embrace all forms of Buddhism here as well. So we've actually offered some land to the Sri Lankan Buddhist community, which are based in Bendigo. Uh, and on that land, they're actually establishing, which they call Bodhidharma Vihara. Uh, they're establishing their own area where they can they can do their own sacred practices within this site as well. Uh, there's also a Thai Buddhist and there's a Vietnamese pagoda planned as well. Um, so again, respecting the uh, all traditions of Buddhism, whether it be Theravadan or Mahayana or Vajrayana, doesn't really matter. Um, and then beyond that, um, just respecting everyone who comes, no matter what faith they are or even if they don't have a faith, we want everyone to come there who comes there to feel that here they have a place where they are, um, where they're welcome, where they're respected, and, and where they're inspired to find a peaceful and a spiritual solution for themselves. Mm, mm. Wow, that is inspiring. Look, uh, I did, I feel like uh, there's so much more to this project as well. Um, maybe you could just mention some of the other things that are happening uh, at as part of the great stupa of universal compassion mm. on, on that site, which I, sure. I haven't yet mentioned. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, on, on the interfaith area, we've also established a large library inside the stupa. And you might remember I mentioned uh, uh, that this was part of Lama Yeshi's original plan. So this library has now been established. Um, it's dedicated to the study of Buddhism, interfaith, and science. Uh, again, taking our, our direction from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who really stressed that this should be a place for interfaith harmony and Buddhist science dialogue. So we already have uh, texts from 11 different faiths represented in the library and many science and faith uh, collections as well. It will be a major repository as it continues to grow uh, and a major resource for study and for, for readers. So currently we've got a bit over 2,000 texts in the uh, in the library. Uh, they're both e-books as well as, uh, as hardcover books as well. And we have a library staff there as well. So it's, it's a great resource promoting interfaith harmony and also st the study of faith and science. Um, the other important thing we do inside the inside the stupa is we promote something which is called, which His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls secular ethics. Now, um, I think His Holiness, as well as Lama Yeshi and Lama Zopa, have been very strong proponents that uh, of the view that um, if you're going to try and change the world and make a major impact in the world, to try and convert everyone to Buddhism is really uh, a, a, a path that will lead you nowhere. Uh, at the moment we have, uh, there are one, uh, sorry, 2.1% of, no, no, less than 2% of Australians are Buddhists. So 1.4%, I think, to be exact, uh, judging by the census figures. And that that figure has plateaued. So where you know, Buddhism used to be a fast-growing religion. Now, at the moment, it's very stable. It's been overtaken recently by Hinduism and by Islam as well in Australia. So you can see that um, the appeal of Buddhism is, is going to be restricted by people's ability to make the connection. Uh, so how to make a big influence on the world. This is how, where His Holiness has stressed secular ethics. And uh, Lama Yeshi also came up with the idea of universal education. So an education for all beings, which is not, not particularly following 
uh, a Buddhist terminology at all, but all the values of Buddhism are incorporated. So we have a, a, a program there which is called 16 Guidelines to a, a Healthy Life, and that's available as a video to everyone who comes, but also handouts are available on that as well, and we also offer specialised training. Um, the other thing inside the stupa that we do, and uh, I, can't, I, I won't go on forever because I hope people will come and see for themselves, um, but we have a museum in there actually, it's called the uh, Unique Tibet Museum, and the Unique Tibet Museum presents the historical aspect of the Tibetan people, their customs, their religion, uh, and their, their lifestyle. So it's, a, it's an interesting collection. It's been set up with the assistance of uh, His Holiness's office in uh, in Canberra, uh, and we have a number of private collections which have all been donated to it. Uh, and of course, there's an ongoing process of artwork. Uh, so building the stupa is one thing, but um, the decoration of the artwork of the stupa is something that is going to go on much longer long after I've gone and long after the stupa is completed. So not only do we have the big gomper inside the stupa, but we've also got shrine rooms on every level. And there may be up to 80 of those shrine rooms. We haven't even started on those yet. Wow. So you have to think of, you have to think of the stupa as being like one of the medieval cathedrals that took two or three generations to complete. <laughs> and uh, I've it's taken me a while to come to look at it in these terms, but I can see this is the only way it's going to happen. So part of that, that decoration phase is ongoing. Um, we have a team of artists. There are 11 artists currently uh, volunteering their time to actually prepare all the artwork for the stupa. Uh, they are working currently on a, uh, a very large statue of Siddhigarbha. This statue is over five metres tall, um, so the, everything inside the stupa is massive. Um, and once they've completed that statue, the next thing is the ceiling. Now the ceiling of the main gomba is in fact going to be a Kalachakra mandala, incredibly ornate, um, but its size is the overwhelming thing. It is 20 metres by 20 metres square. So to hand paint that whole ceiling is an incredible project which we expect will take close to two years. And we've started work on that at the present moment. So we've given ourselves a deadline of um, 2025 to have that completed because we plan to have a Kalachakra initiation inside the stupa in that year. That's... So there's a lot going on all the time. That's, that's incredible and it's it is inspiring in the sense i think that parallel to like a medieval cathedral like the the amount of work that goes in but also the inspiration and the the devotion it's it's an un, it stands out it's unusual in the modern world look that brings me to my next question could you tell me what was and is the meaning and purpose of the great stupa of universe compassion Well, uh, as many of your listeners may know, a stupa itself has many different purposes, uh, many different per uh, functions. First of all, it's a symbol of the enlightened mind. So it's called sacred geometry or sacred architecture because it's, it's built on a mandala shape which symbolizes the enlightened mind. Secondly, it's a place where relics are kept, relics of the Buddha and other, other um, holy teachers as well. Uh, so our stupa is going to perform all of those purposes. But beyond that, the reason why this stupa is so large uh, is not you know, just uh, to make it a special offering to the Buddha or to Buddhism or something like this. It's actually to bring people there to actually make a, uh, to inspire them. So, you know, the way I look at it is there are many symbols uh, in the outside world that affect our inner world. So in the West, we look around, and I remember my trip to India, I realized how spiritualism was, spirituality was everywhere. 
So this, in the West, we look around and we see symbols of commerce with big office towers or expenditure with shopping malls or we see, uh, you know, uh, consumerism or we mm. see individuality in all our suburban houses or whatever or we see competition in sporting arenas. But this, the actual symbols of faith themselves are quite rare in our, in our sort of world. The uh, sometimes there, you know, we might love the stained glass windows or whatever of the symbols we do have, but quite often those symbols are seen as maybe something from another generation. Uh, to me, what what the stupa is doing is actually creating this symbol that spirituality is something here and something now that we really need to incorporate out in our in our own reality as well. And like every day that I'm at the stupa, I get people who come to me and say, it's so peaceful, it's mm -hmm. so inspiring to come here. Uh, so you can see that this whole vision that Lama Yeshi and Lama Zopa have had for the stupa, that it be a place which will, uh, well, in Lama, Lama Zopa's word, will plant the seed of enlightenment, is actually coming is coming to reality because people do come there and they, be, they leave much more inspired and much more positive than before they came. That's a really great answer, I have to say, and thank you for that. And thanks for all your efforts to make this, uh, what must have seemed like an impossible project, a reality now. And obviously it's still a working project, uh, it work in uh, underway, but I think that, that in itself means that people will continue to engage and contribute to this project for quite a long time to come. Look, there's going to be people mm, out there yeah. who are going to want to find out more and hopefully even go and see uh, the Great Stupor of Universe Compassion. Could you tell mm. them how can they find out more information um, about uh, visiting or about just, just about the project in general? Yeah, sure. Um... So uh, the easiest way is just to connect through our website, which is uh, www.stupa.org.au. So that's stupa, uh, S-T-U-P-A dot org, O-R-G dot A-U. And I'd like to also... Now, go, uh, I mean, that's the simple way. If we've got uh, an office staff there who are happy to take any inquiries as well. So yep. uh, if you haven't want to send an email, that's simple to info at stupa.org.au. I'll make sure that those details are in the description below the podcast. So if you want to click on the link, uh, you can do so quite conveniently. Uh, is there anything that I've forgotten to mention or you've forgotten to mention that we would like to uh, include before we wrap the interview up? Well, uh, Sol, I'd like to thank you and uh, Everyday Dhamma Network for the efforts you do as well. I think uh, it's a wonderful thing and thank you for reaching out to me to actually provide the opportunity for this, this interview. Thank you very much. It has been such a pleasure and to be honest, quite frankly, for me, it's a privilege and uh, look, thank you for all the work you're doing and just best wishes. I really hope that it all comes to fruition over time. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much indeed. Bye. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this inspiring episode of Treasure Mound in which Ian Green, the chairman of the Great Stupor of Universal Compassion and founder of the Jay Buddha for Universal Peace, shared the story of the Great Stupor in Bendigo, Australia. If you are headed to that part of the world, I strongly recommend that you check it out. You'd be missing out if you don't go. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate if you could share this episode with your friends or other people who could benefit from this inspiring story. And don't forget to click on the follow button so that you get the latest episodes turning up in your stream on your podcast app. Treasure Mountain is part of the Everyday Dhamma Network. You can find out more about Treasure Mountain Podcast by going to the link in the description below this episode, or you can do a web search for Everyday Dhamma Network. You can also find that uh, out on the Treasure Mountain Podcast website information, all previous episodes, as well as guests and transcriptions of interviews. And you can also tell me what you think by contacting me via the contact page, and I'd really appreciate your feedback too. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Treasure Mountain Podcast as we seek for the treasure 
within. 